Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The whistleblower and anti-war activist who leaked the Pentagon Papers has died at the age of 92. The documents revealed secret details of U.S. strategy in the Vietnam War. Bill Gates meets with Chinese leader Xi Jinping as the Gates Foundation pledges to pour millions into a Chinese medical research institute that it helped establish years ago. A federal jury convicts the gunmen who killed 11 people at the Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018. It was the deadliest attack ever on Jewish people in America. Both President Biden and former President Trump are stepping up their 2024 fundraising, and Biden is slated to hold his first campaign event this weekend. And the Justice Department releases a scathing report on the Minneapolis Police Department three years after the death of George Floyd. Daniel Ellsberg, the whistleblower who leaked the Pentagon Papers on the Vietnam War, has died at the age of 92. He was diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer in February. The Pentagon Papers were a 47-volume, 7,000-page Pentagon study of the U.S. role in Vietnam from the 1940s to the 1960s. The documents revealed secret details of U.S. decisions and strategy in the Vietnam War. Ellsberg was a consultant to the Pentagon at the time and had the highest security clearances. He provided the Pentagon Papers to Neil Sheehan, a reporter who broke the story for the New York Times in June 1971. The leak helped fuel the growing mistrust in government during the Vietnam War, and Ellsberg became an icon for the anti-war movement. Microsoft's co-founder Bill Gates met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping today. This comes just one day after the Gates Foundation pledged a $50 million donation to a Chinese medical research institute. NTD's Sam Wong has more. The meeting took place at Beijing's Diaoyutai State Guest House, a diplomatic complex used to house foreign dignitaries. Xi called Gates an old friend, saying that he was happy to see the business magnate after three years. Gates, on the same token, said he was honored to meet with Xi, added that there's a lot of important topics to discuss. The Chinese Medical Research Institute that's receiving the grant is called GHDDI. It was first established in 2016 with the help of the Gates Foundation, China's elite Tsinghua University, and the city of Beijing. The $50 million from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is slated to bolster its drug research capacity over the next five years. Gates' connection with Beijing goes beyond GHDDI. Microsoft has been in China for more than 30 years and has a large research center there. Its web portal, Bing, is the only China-accessible foreign search engine. As the regime tightens its grip on the nation's digital sector, Bing's search results on a number of sensitive topics have been censored. Cybersecurity research group Citizen Lab found that Bing also restricts certain Chinese search results for U.S. users. Worth noting, it's rare for a Chinese leader to meet with a foreign business leader. Just recently, Apple CEO Tim Cook and Tesla CEO Elon Musk both visited China. But Gates is the only one who got to meet with Xi Jinping. Sam Wang, NTD News. A verdict reached after more than four years. A federal jury today convicted the gunman who killed 11 people at the Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018. 
50-year-old Robert Bowers was found guilty of all 63 federal charges against him. They include 11 capital counts of obstruction of free exercise of religious beliefs resulting in death, 11 counts of hate crimes resulting in death, and other charges. The convictions mean the trial will enter a separate penalty phase. The jury will then decide whether to sentence Bowers to death or life in prison without the possibility of parole. The penalty phase is scheduled to begin June 26th. On October 27, 2018, Bowers entered the Tree of Life Synagogue and opened fire during Saturday services, killing 11 worshippers and wounding six others. It was the deadliest attack ever on Jewish people in the U.S. President Biden will hold his first campaign event tomorrow for his 2024 run. What to expect as both Biden and former President Trump are stepping up their fundraising efforts. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. President Biden got some good news today. The nation's largest labor union, the AFL-CIO, endorsed President Biden's re-election campaign on Friday. And that's as more than a dozen other labor unions also endorsed Biden on the same day, highlighting his labor union ties, which he himself often touts about. I make no apologies for me labeled the most pro-union president in American history. I'm proud of it. And the latest endorsements here also come as Biden is set to hold his first campaign event after announcing his 2024 bid. On Saturday, he's traveling to Philadelphia to rally with union members. And that's in addition to the more than 20 fundraising events that he's attending in this month alone. Meanwhile, on the other hand, former President Trump, which is Biden's biggest contender here, is also stepping up his fundraising efforts. After his indictment last week, his campaign sent out a flurry of emails to his supporters asking for donations. And former President Trump announced on Thursday that his campaign has raised over $7 million in just the past few days. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. More on the House Oversight Committee's investigation into the business dealings of President Biden and his family. Here's what Committee Chairman James Comer told Fox Business on Thursday. Well, according to what the oligarch told the FBI informant uh, was that uh, they had 17 recordings, uh, two of President Joe Biden, the others of his son, uh, accepting bribes and talking about the terms of the bribe. Uh, this is a very serious allegation. And Comer said his committee is expecting more bank records to come in. He said he believes the records would reveal the Biden family taking in as much as $30 million in bribes from foreign nationals. The chairman noted that his committee has already tracked down $10 million and vowed to follow the money. The debt ceiling crisis has been averted, but another budget-related road bump is on the horizon, the annual government spending bills. Democrats are accusing some Republicans of driving toward a government shutdown, as some in the GOP aim to cut funding below the levels negotiated in the Biden-McCarthy deal. Hentity's Melina Wisecup lays out the issue with more context. Right now, the House and the Senate are on a collision course as they work through the appropriations process. That's where Congress sets the government budget every fiscal year. And if that doesn't happen on time by September 30th, it opens up the possibility for a government shutdown. And right now, this path is bumpy with the Senate working within the budget cap set in that Biden-McCarthy debt ceiling deal that is 2024 fiscal year spending levels, while the House is working to cut that down even more, working 
working within the framework of 2022 fiscal year spending levels. This has led to upset Democrats who accuse Republicans of backpedaling on their promises. It's perhaps an effort by some extreme MAGA Republicans to drive us toward a government shutdown. We have a, a, a hunger crisis in the United States. And what the Republicans wanted to do was to uh, really make massive cuts. That was the basis for, for the agreement. And now they don't want to abide by the agreement. The Republicans have pushed back, saying that the deal met between Biden and McCarthy was meant as a spending ceiling, not a spending floor. The Republican Study Committee this week launched their official budget. And like I mentioned, that is working within the 2022 spending levels. I asked why take this approach if they know this will make it difficult to reach that September 30th deadline. Take a look. Why set this budget at 2022 fiscal spending levels considering you do expect pushback? I'm going back to say, what does the fiscal spending levels need to look like post-COVID? It's like uh, we've forgotten that we dumped literally trillions of dollars into the economy. But despite that expected pushback from Democrats, there's also some unhappy Republicans who are skeptical that their party leadership will take advantage of recession loopholes that would allow them to say they're working at 2022 spending levels, whereas the actual spending will be much higher. So now the challenge for Speaker McCarthy is to work out a deal on government funding that's able to get through the Democrat-controlled Senate and that President Biden would be willing to sign. All the while, he is working with just uh, the ability for one member in the House to bring a motion that would strip him of the speaker's gavel. So McCarthy's walking a very thin line here over the next few months. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Wisecup, NTD News. The Justice Department released a report today on the Minneapolis Police Department, or MPD, three years after the death of George Floyd. We found that MPD and the city of Minneapolis engages in a pattern or practice of using excessive force, unlawfully discriminating against black and Native American people in enforcement activities, violating the rights of people engaged in protected speech, and discriminating against people with behavioral disabilities and responding to them when responding to them in crisis. The report concluded that the MPD has systemic problems that led to the death of Floyd in May 2020. It says the department for years used dangerous techniques and weapons against people who had committed a petty offense or no offense at all, used force to punish people who made officers angry or criticized the police, and patrolled neighborhoods differently based on their racial composition. The report came after the DOJ reviewed hundreds of police body cam videos, incident and police reports, hundreds of complaints filed against officers, and dozens of interviews with city leaders, community leaders, and police officials. Coming up, Iowa Supreme Court issues a surprise ruling on abortion. Find out what's in it and what the judges have to say. And in Tennessee, a group of music publishers is suing Twitter for copyright infringement. A patent attorney tells NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards it doesn't look good for Twitter.
Welcome back. In an unexpected move today, the Iowa Supreme Court declined to reinstate an abortion law. It would have banned abortions after a fetal heartbeat was detected, with exceptions for rape, incest and health issues. A 2019 district court ruling blocked that law, and in a 3-3 split decision today, the state's highest court agreed. The latest ruling comes roughly a year after the state's Supreme Court determined that women don't have a fundamental constitutional right to abortion. Although the court has seven justices, one justice declined to participate because her former law firm had represented an abortion provider. In the opinion of the three justices who kept the block on the law, it was not appropriate for them to interfere with the state's legislature. However, the decision does not prevent lawmakers from writing a new law with the same provisions. For now, abortions remain legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. And a new poll showing more and more Americans are against late-term abortions, even among those who support early-term abortions, indicating that opinions aren't as divided as they might seem. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the key takeaways. Earlier this year, pro-life organization Life Action published this video, asking a person whether there should be any restrictions on abortion. I'm going to say no. I say whenever you make that decision, whatever that decision is feel like you should be able to do whatever you want to do at whatever time. Clips and opinions like this one are often seen nowadays. However, Gallup released a poll this week indicating most people don't share this opinion. The poll showed that almost 70% of Americans say they think abortion should be illegal during the third trimester of pregnancy. Meanwhile, also 70% say it should be legal during the first trimester, indicating an overlap and that most people actually have a center view on the issue. And just last week, Gallup published a poll showing that most Americans don't share liberal views on social issues. 38% of people now say they're conservative on social issues, which is up 5% from last year. At the same time, only 29% say they're liberal on those issues, down 5% from last year. Last year, the numbers were split evenly. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Twitter is back in the spotlight, this time from the music industry. They're suing the social media company for $250 million over alleged copyright infringement. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more details. In a 54-page complaint, members of the Tennessee music industry say Twitter is rife with copyright infringement. 17 major and independent music publishing companies are being represented in a lawsuit filed in a Tennessee federal court on Wednesday. They are seeking $250 million in damages. The complaint states that Twitter consistently and knowingly hosts and streams infringing copies of musical compositions. It also states that other social media companies have entered into agreements to compensate music creators, but that so far Twitter has refused to do the same. Patent attorney John Rizvi said the lawsuit is very damaging for Twitter. One of the things that I think make this an unusual uh, lawsuit is that they're suing for willful infringement uh, under uh, of the copyright. And there are uh, greatly increased damages for willful infringement. Whereas uh, if you cannot prove that it was knowingly done on purpose, then the maximum statutory damages are $30,000 per incident. Uh, if you can show that it is willful, then that increases 
and the courts are empowered to go up until $150,000 per incident. He said a lot of things happened over the last few years that probably provide evidence of willfulness, such as... In fact, I think maybe one of the factors is even Elon Musk's various tweets about uh, copyright infringement, kind of uh, downplaying the importance and ridiculing uh, uh, the copyrights. So I think that is is also playing a big part in showing that this infringement is is not accidental. It's certainly willful. In May 2022, Musk did say this about the law. Current copyright law in general goes absurdly far beyond protecting the original creator. The court will have to decide if statements like this show a willingness to infringe. Rizvi said his advice to Musk is... I think the best course would be uh, to, to come to an agreement on for licensing of these rights for past infringement and then uh, and then come to an agreement as to the, the right way for future royalty payments for use of, uh, of the copyrighted material. So Arlene Richards, NTD News. The latest presidential candidate is promising to address our nation's most critical issues. So what does he bring to the table? NTD's Christina Corona has more from the Miami mayor's speech in California. The 2024 presidential election is rapidly approaching. The list of nominees is growing, and one of the most recent candidates to enter the race is Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. Here at the Reagan Library, Suarez is speaking at an event which is focused on the future of the Republican Party in California. The 43rd mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, delivered a speech at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library as part of the Institute's A Time for Choosing speaker series in hopes of gaining your vote. Earlier this week, Suarez announced his candidacy for the upcoming presidential election. During the speech, the mayor emphasized his commitment to addressing the issue of homelessness and implementing effective solutions to provide support and assistance to those in need. Homelessness is exploding across America. Our friends not too far down the road in Los Angeles are keenly aware of this. At one point, Miami peaked with over 6,000 homeless, but today we're down to 608. Suarez mentions that we cannot solve homelessness until we address the mental health epidemic in America. From mass shootings to addiction and homelessness, we need to address mental health and critical care with new and innovative approaches that help people build the skills to avoid crisis. We've done much and plan to do more because access to education is the greatest tool for prosperity of our time. The mayor admires Ronald Reagan's impactful legacy and looks to it as a source of inspiration for guiding the growth and development of his city, Miami, and for the future of America. Today's Miami is a living and breathing example of President Reagan's legacy a thriving city on a hill, built on the promises of keeping taxes low, keeping people safe, and embracing our culture of American innovation. From homelessness to high taxes, from mental health to the border crisis and more, the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, is hoping to make the leap from the mayor's office in the Sunshine State to the Oval Office in the White House. From the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, Christina Corona, NTD News, Simi Valley. 
Staying in California, another company is planning to shut down its retail store in San Francisco this summer. AT&T says changes in customers' shopping habits are one of the reasons it's closing its flagship store. In the past few years, retail stores have been closing in California. More recently, AT&T announced that its flagship store in downtown San Francisco will be closing on August 1st. On Friday, the flagship on 1 Powell Street had roughly a dozen visitors in one hour at noontime, near the cable car turnaround. AT&T spokesman Chris Collins provided this statement. Consumer shopping habits continue to change and we're changing with them. That means serving customers where they are through the right mix of retail stores, digital channels, and our phone-based care team. We are proud of our continued presence in the community, not only through our retail stores, but our local investment in world-class connectivity with our 5G and fiber networks. All retail employees affected by this change will be offered jobs at one of the many other retail locations in the city. Currently, there are 12 AT&T stores throughout the city of San Francisco. Coming up, how vulnerable is the U.S. energy grid? Could one storm or one attack plunge the nation into darkness? We speak with an expert for his analysis and recommendations. And nine people have been arrested in connection to a deadly migrant shipwreck off the coast of Greece. At least 79 people were killed, with hundreds still missing. We'll have the details after the break. Welcome back. America's energy grid, we depend on it, not just for power in our homes, but also for our national security. How safe is the grid, both from Mother Nature and from global adversaries? And what can we do to protect it? We spoke with Tommy Waller, the president and CEO of the Center for Security Policy, for his analysis. Tommy Waller, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tiffany, for having me on. So the House Energy Subcommittee held a hearing today on enhancing America's security and grid. How vulnerable is our grid to China or other adversaries? Well, Tiffany, unfortunately, the grid is extremely vulnerable, both to Mother Nature and to human adversaries. Uh, this is something that our organization has been paying close attention to and working on for, for years, in fact, over a decade. And in terms of energy, it seems one area that is brought up that you've brought up in the past is the U.S.'s dependence on extra high voltage transformers from China. Give us a sense of what these are and what they do. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, people will actually, if they think about it for a moment, when they drive around and they see electrical substations, which if they're paying attention, they'll notice most of them are completely undefended. You'll see these gigantic transformers. Right. And those are the we consider the backbone of the grid. When we say electric grid, we just mean all of the components that generate electricity and transmit it and distribute it for us to use. Well, those transformers are vital because they step up and step down the voltages to allow electricity to travel long, long distances, which it must from the places where it's generated to the places that we use it. So why is it a problem for those to be vulnerable to physical attack? Like I said, you can see them on the side of the street or to supply chain attack, which is exactly what China figured out. Uh, it's because if we lose those transformers, we lose the grid, we lose the grid, we lose electricity, and we can't live without electricity. 
And you mentioned China figured out the supply chain aspect. So how did they figure that out and how are they dominating that? So part of it is because China, of course, needs electricity for its own population. So as it built out its own grid, uh, it started to see just how important these assets were uh, in the construction of electric grids. But much like we've seen in every other dimension, you know, China's unrestricted warfare, what they did is they identified, okay, this is a critical component for modern civilization, for the United States and any other modern society. And then they identified those components of transformers that are the most critical, like the type of steel, grain-oriented electrical steel is, is the one kind of steel you can use to make these things. They started to dump onto the market massive amounts of grain-oriented electrical steel to put other manufacturers out of business and put themselves in a spot where they would be dominant. Now, what's really worrisome is not just that we're purchasing these from China, but that we've actually found at least one Chinese transformer had a hardware backdoor in it that could allow someone remotely to shut it down. We know that because it was seized in the port of Houston and brought to Sandia National Laboratory uh, where it was inspected. And the results are classified, but at least one former Trump administ administration official did mention that they, that they found such a hardware backdoor. And Tommy, in terms of these transformers, it seems there's a report out that says if even just nine of these were taken out, America's energy grid would be basically down. How would that look like in our daily lives? Well, I'll just have, have your viewers think about it for a moment. I mean, think about what you need electricity for. The water stops flowing, depending on where you live. It could be just minutes or hours. You lose water, you lose wastewater and, and disposal. I mean, our food security is dependent on our electricity, right? I mean, refrigeration is required uh, for, for food. People are just really ill-prepared right now to go without it, and that's something that should be a lesson for people. Think about Moore County, North Carolina last December. The residents of Moore County found themselves in the dark without any advance notice because people shot up a couple of transformer substations and the lights went out, right? That could happen anywhere in the United States. And as you just mentioned, Tiffany, if attackers knew exactly which nine substations to attack, it could have a cascading grid outage that could plunge the entire country into darkness, potentially for, well, at the time that the study was done, they said 18 months. The reality now, Tiffany, is that the, the lead times for transformer replacements could make it such that the blackout could last much, much longer. And Tommy, given all that's at stake here, how do we protect our grid either from Mother Nature or adversaries? The good news, Tiffany, is, is it's, it's absolutely doable. This isn't like the, the crisis that the Biden administration talks about with, quote, climate change, uh, where, you know, there's disagreement about all of the scientific aspects. We know how to protect the grid against all hazards, right? And those hazards include physical sabotage we just talked about, cyber attack, electromagnetic pulse, both natural and man-made, and of course, supply chain attacks. Supply chain, how do we protect it? We make sure we're not importing them from China. And unfortunately, you know, President Trump put an executive order in place May 1st, 2020, that would help stop the importation of Chinese transformers. We had about 300 in the grid at that time. Joe Biden on his first day in office suspended that executive order and opened the floodgates. We now have about 400 Chinese transformers in the grid. This is a fixable problem, Tiffany. It's just, it takes the will of the American people, particularly those that are in charge in government and in industry to do the right thing. Tommy Waller, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. 
With eyes on China's secret spy base in Cuba, what exactly does the eavesdropping facility look like? We take an up-close look at this little-known base, only about 100 miles from Florida. A track deep in the jungle leads to a rusted wire fence with a sign that warns, keep out, military zone. This is the Cuban village of Bejucal, home to what Washington suspects is a spy post for Beijing. Based on the information we have, the PRC conducted an upgrade of its intelligence collection facilities in Cuba in 2019. The White House didn't respond to questions on whether Bejucal was the venue for the facility, but according to a Federal Communications Commission document from last year, Washington believes this Bejucal base is used to intercept U.S. electronic communications. Seen from afar, all that's visible is a huge enclosed white dome and giant parabolic antennas. Farmers nearby said they were unaware of reports of Chinese spying activities in the area, but added if those were true, they would soon find out. Here, everything is known. Here in Cuba, everything is known. Cubans don't miss anything. The sleepy town of Bejucal has long been a place full of secrets. During the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, U.S. spy planes uncovered it as a hideout for Soviet nuclear warheads. I handed over documents when I went there. To get in there, you have to have access. That is, there is a badge and you have to have a password. The question of Chinese spying from Cuba burst into view last week. This followed a Wall Street Journal report that Cuba had struck a secret deal allowing China to set up an electronic eavesdropping facility. Both Beijing and Havana dismissed the accusation of a Chinese spy base in Cuba, calling the statement unfounded. Greek police have arrested nine Egyptian nationals in connection with a deadly migrant shipwreck off the country's coast. The suspects were seen being escorted last night from Coast Guard headquarters in a city near where the ship sank. The death toll now stands at 78, but that number is expected to rise as hundreds are still missing. Reports suggest up to 750 people were packed on the fishing boat when it capsized and sank Wednesday morning in deep waters some 50 miles from shore. Local media reported the ship departed from Egypt and stopped at a Libyan port before setting off for Italy. Officials said the people on the ship repeatedly rejected assistance from Greece's Coast Guard, making a rescue operation impossible. French authorities are suing a top virologist. It's over his study on how he used alternative treatments to cure people during the COVID pandemic. The hospital he managed had one of the lowest mortality rates in France. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story. In March 2020, as the COVID pandemic was spreading in Europe and the U.S., some doctors started to use anti-malarial drugs such as hydroxychloroquine to cure patients. But the topic has been divisive. In the United States, the FDA recommended against hydroxychloroquine, while some medical experts like Dr. Robert Malone said it could have saved thousands of lives. France's virologist Didier Raoult is said to be the man behind Trump promoting hydroxychloroquine in 2020. He was the first to use this drug in a treatment protocol at the Marseille Institute of Virology he founded. He and seven virologists and doctors this April published data of from 30,000 patients showing positive results for the treatment. Ralt's protocol was an absolutely astounding success since their mortality rate, hospitalization rate, and development of severe or long-lasting forms have been reduced by factors of up to 2.5. In other words, it's truly mind-boggling. And today, we're obviously talking about chloroquine dropsy. 
but we're also talking about the other therapies that have been undertaken and about care as a whole, since it was all about taking charge of the patient with an early diagnosis. France's health agency ordered the hospital study to be removed over serious breaches in several other clinical trials and filed a lawsuit against Raoul earlier this month. According to anesthesiologist Fouché, who has been close to Raoul, these actions are not justified. His first therapeutic trial was very small, and he then went on to treat people because at the hospital level, we were allowed to continue using these drugs without a marketing authorization. And I was the first to prescribe this drug, treating people with it in intensive care in the hospital. And so that's what Professor Didier Raoult did too. Fouché says hydroxychloroquine and other COVID treatments have been very controversial for one reason. If the treatments already exist, there would be no possibility for experimental treatments to be authorized. So today, you have a problem. If someone punishes studies demonstrating that COVID-19 is curable, that early or preventative therapies are effective, this calls into question the potential development of innovative therapeutics that are developed in emergencies for this type of pathology. From the moment you have old molecules that can be reused, at that point, the business model of major pharmaceutical companies collapses. In a recent tweet, Raoult said mortality in his Marseille hospital in 2020 and 2021 was around 7%, one of the lowest of the world. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Britain will be hosting an AI summit this fall in the hopes of becoming the global leader in artificial intelligence regulation. But given that nations like China and Russia may have different ethical standards, what's the best path forward in regulating AI? NDD's Malcolm Hudson spoke with an ethics professor for his insights. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has pitched the UK as the global leader in AI regulation. It's a tall order, with giants like the European Union pushing forwards the world's first major artificial intelligence act. Luciano Floridi, founding director for Yale's Centre for Digital Ethics, said the UK's approach to leadership could be different to that of the EU's. If the UK could be uh, the host, uh, the table where these giants meet, where all these um, uh, issues uh, come to some uh, resolution, then their view, uh, their ambition is very realistic. Sunak's government will host a summit on the risks and regulation of AI later this year, a plan President Biden is backing. A key issue is how the regulations are enforced. AI companies could go to nations with less strict regulations to train their algorithms. Then they could return to the West to sell the finished product. Floridi gave an analogy. What is happening, uh, roughly speaking, with an analogy, analogy with the uh, genetically modified food? Uh, Europe uh, does not have genetically modified food uh, produced within Europe, but imports an enormous amount of it. Floridi said Western nations could end up importing AI services developed where there is little or no regulation. The risk is that those countries could develop technologically dangerous AI. AI that discriminates, that misallocates resources, or perhaps that could even kill randomly. Now, if we want to have, as I said, AI that is acceptable socially, environmentally, we need to look at the whole uh, chain of production of the AI, not just at the end of the service. Floridi said incorporating AI into our society is a great opportunity, if we can do it well. 
This, he said, requires planning and a lot of education to ensure a good relationship between what he called our future culture and our cultural heritage. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Coming up in baseball, the Los Angeles Dodgers are going ahead with their Pride Night plans, despite concerns from Catholics about one of the groups being honored. And a new docudrama explores what's behind the transgender movement and how it affects children. We'll hear from the filmmaker who tells the real-life stories of several youth when we return. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with some surprising news from the NBA. That's right, Tiff. Michael Jordan, the Hall of Fame player and Charlotte Hornets owner, has agreed to shell his majority stake in the team, though he will retain a minority share. Now, the exact financial details of the transaction have yet to be made public, but the deal was reportedly made with the franchise being appraised at approximately $3 billion. Jordan, who purchased the team in 2010 for $275 million, saw little success during his 13-year run. Charlotte made the playoffs just three times in that span, though none the last seven years. Elsewhere in the league, the NBA has suspended Grizzlies all-star guard John Morant for 25 games for what's being called conduct detrimental to the league. Morant was seen holding a gun while driving on a friend's Instagram video in May. The video has been since deleted. The suspension is without pay, meaning the 23-year-old will forfeit roughly seven and a half of his $33 million salary for next season. Now, this is the second time in the last three months the NBA has punished Morant for a gun incident. In March, he was given an eight-game hiatus after his live video on Instagram account showed him carrying a gun while appearing to be intoxicated at a club in Denver. Now, police reviewed the incident but said there was no reason to charge him with the crime. After your sports viewing schedule tonight, 14 baseball games are on, featuring a Dodgers-Giants matchup in LA during the team's much-talked-about Pride Night. The event drew criticism from the Catholic community last month after the team invited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence as one of the LGBTQ groups. Senator Marco Rubio, among others, wrote a letter to Major League Baseball asking how inviting a group that mocks Christians and none specifically fits in with their inclusivity narrative. The Dodgers then disinvited the group only to do another about face and reinvite them back just a few days later after backlash from the other side. As for the on-the-field matchup, the second-place Dodgers will start rookie Emmett Sheehan, who's making his Major League debut opposite the Giants' John Brebbia. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. The transgender movement has gained national attention, but what lies beneath this surge and how is it affecting children? Entities Jack Bradley spoke with award-winning filmmaker Tobias Albahage about his new docudrama, Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities. The film is the latest Epoch original documentary, and it's been selected for the Manhattan Film Festival, where it's premiering in New York City tonight. Tobias Elvahage, thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So uh, this documentary, what, this docudrama rather, what can our viewers expect to see when they watch it? Good question. They, um, they will see a lot of uh, interesting interviews with the 
experts and also with the, what you call detransitioners. That that is like young people and some are a little bit older. Actually, the oldest one is over 80 years old. Uh, people who have like regretted their decision to change gender and uh, come to a lot of realizations through this process. I want to I want to touch upon that. So what is behind based on what you've learned throughout the documentary, what's behind the rise in this transgender movement today? There's all kinds of factors, I would say. That what what I learned is that, you know, it can be, you know, many times it's underlying issues that that these persons are having. Um, and then it's getting used uh, by, you know, this gender identity movement that I would, I would call it a movement, definitely. Uh, and you can see this movement, how it's been, you know, uh, really coming into the schools. And it has been, you know, uh, also be coming into the, the therapy environment. So the therapists now, they are taught that you should, if someone is having, you know, is exploring or, or having questions about their gender identity, you should never go uh, like further and, and, and start to ask questions about the gender, about underlying issues. Then you should instead just affirm these people right away. So that's one issue. And the other issue is the, the same thing with, with doctors, pretty much, that they should never question a person's, uh, you know, questioning of their gender identity. So they should just affirm it. and. That's what we, we see in this movie, the consequences of that and, and why it's, it's like that. And, and yeah, that's the, the questions that we are exploring. And so Tobias, why did you get involved with this? So I was asked by the Epoch Times uh, if I would like to explore the, the topic of transgender in a documentary. And uh, at, the, at first I was actually a little bit, you know, wondering if I, if I should really do this. Uh, it's a, kind of you know sensitive topic and I, I yeah I just didn't know so much about it and I started to do a lot of research and I, I came across actually a Swedish documentary or actually it's like a investigative program and they explore the side effects of these puberty blockers and they had a case of a you know a, a girl who's been on the puberty blockers for four years and she had devastating consequences of this. You know, her she could hardly stand up for over ten minutes, or else she would be like all tired and, and uh, you know she she couldn't live a, a normal life, pretty much. And there were that's not the only case. There's a lot of cases with children who has been, their their lives have been you know devastated because of this. So when I saw this, I was like, yeah, I have to I have to jump on this subject. This is. Uh, it was for me shocking that, that this could happen today in Western societies and especially when I learned what, what's happening in the US because this documentary in Sweden, it actually had a good effect. So now in, in Swedish uh, society, the children, it's not that easy to go on puberty blockers anymore. It's more in exceptional cases. Uh, so the whole, the National uh, Bureau of uh, Welfare, they changed actually the policies. But in the U.S., it's actually, you know, it's getting worse and worse. And, and especially we went to California and in, investigated the environment there. And it's like you can, you can lose custody of your children or your child if, they, if you don't agree on them, you know, suddenly changing their gender, you know, without even, you know, having some time to think about it. They can, they can start to question their gender. And if you don't affirm that, you can, you know, you can lose custody within uh, a very short time.
Tobias Elgahave, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities debuts to worldwide audiences on Epoch TV on Monday, June 19th. To watch, you can visit EpochTV.com and subscribe for just $1 for two months of unlimited access or go to GenderTransformation.com where you can watch the first 10 minutes of the documentary for free. And the annual celebration of fatherhood is this weekend. As Father's Day approaches, NTD asked people around the U.S. to tell a story about their dad. Let's take a look. Fatherhood's super important. This year is going to be different for me. My dad just passed uh, a month and a half ago from cancer. So it's a bittersweet um, Father's Day just because he's not around, but I also know that he's not in pain anymore. He always would make sure that we had Pop-Tarts in the car. Uh, when he was driving us to school, my mom didn't typically let us have those, so he had Pop-Tarts in the car for us, and we would eat them for breakfast on the way to school. Even though he wasn't around as much, he still made it to, you know, a lot of my stuff, like swim meets or any kind of extra events that I had as much as he could. Um, so it was just appreciative, even though, again, he was, I knew he was working hard to give us a, a better life. Now my sisters and I, we would just usually cook breakfast for him and bring it up. It uh, wasn't particularly funny, but he really loved it. And, and of course, we usually burnt it or, you know. <laughs> but just the fact his three little girls coming in with breakfast was a special time. Particular story is just him protecting me and my sister. And uh, we were bike riding one day, and sure enough, a couple dogs came to attack. And he basically got off his bike, grabbed his bike, and used that as a weapon or force field to protect us. Um. For over 50 years of my life, I saw him as the leader of our family. But he was a, um, he had a servant heart. He led by serving and had a quietness about him, um, but wisdom, lots of wisdom. and gained so much from that and hopefully have passed it on down through the next generation. Yes. Anywhere we went, he would always talk about the animals and nature and the world. And I think that that helped me process um, how to be in the world as a kid without needing to be entertained all the time by external distractions and whatnot. So I do my best to take my kids out into the natural world and just let them be, you know. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.